Welcome to the Lead a New Future podcast. I'm Kate Ruby Aroha, a senior leadership trainer with close to two decades of experience. The leadership I'm about is one that values respect and transparency while harnessing our ability to effect change. With a clinical background, I've worked within highly acclaimed leadership teams in the health sector of New Zealand before spending a decade facilitating advanced leadership experiences across multiple countries. And here's the thing about leadership. Leadership is just as important within our homes as it is within every level of our community, teams and organisations. In this podcast, you'll find a variety of conversations that connect to our leadership and our lives, where we can impact what matters, where it matters. Let's get into it. So I want to say first up, like really deeply thank you for the work you do. And that's a personal thanks, actually. My husband and I, without this work, we would either not be married or we would be married in a very suffering space. Mm. I think those are equally not okay with me. (laughs) You know, yeah, there's, there's a lot of relationships that are, you know, celebrate 50 years. But that 50 years has been quite suffering. Thank you very much for your work you do. I really would like to hand it over to you. Where would you like to start with the conversation around conscious loving? What are some words that you'd like to share? Yes, thank you very much. Well, my wife, Katie, also known as Kathleen, on the front of the book it says Kathleen, but around the house we call her Katie. Um, She and I have been together almost 38 years now. And during that uh, time, which is more than half my life now, uh, we've had... um, a really long laboratory of how to maximize the amount of love in our lives. And so when we first got together, I had just had a big wake-up experience. I was, I think I was 34 at the time, 33 or 34. And I'd had several relationships in my 20s and my early 30s. And in particular, I was in this one particular relationship on and off again for several years before I met Katie, where it was really good when it was good, and then we would have fights, and it would go into the trough, and then it would take us weeks to kind of dig back out of the trough, and then we'd have a great time again for a few days, and then into the trough, and so it was it was the kind of up and down and up and down, and I really got burnt out with that, and so I asked the question one day, kind of asked it to the universe, what am I doing wrong here? Why do my relationships always seem to bring me so much pain? And I got a huge download that was just amazing to me at the time. It seemed to come out of nowhere. But what dropped into my mind and my heart was that all of my relationship pain was caused by one of several things. One is, if I didn't tell the truth all the time, or if my partner didn't tell the truth, even about simple things like, I'm angry, or I'm sad, or I'm scared, or I'd rather you didn't do that. Whatever the concealed communication was, I would then start to see my partner as negative. In other words, I'd start to aim criticism at her. And so I realized that any time I withheld something, that I swallowed the truth or didn't speak honestly, I would begin to project onto her. And I suddenly realized this. I'm I'm kind of sad in a way that it took me to into my 30s to figure this out. But you know, there's one thing about having a PhD in psychology and then having a PhD in the ability to live with one person all the time. And yeah. so I'd gotten a great PhD from Stanford and I was a practicing psychologist at the time, but I needed to turn that mirror on myself. Mm-hmm. So I realized that. I needed to tell the truth scrupulously, and I wanted to be in a relationship where both people did that. The the second thing I realized was that almost every time I created a relationship problem, it was because I was blaming the other person for something, and she was busily doing the same thing to me. And so I had relationships throughout my teens and 20s and everything where we blamed each other for things. And when I looked at it, I realized, wow, that's exactly the kind of family I grew up in. Nobody ever took any responsibility. They always was blaming it and pinning it on the other person. Mm -hmm. But I had this wake up moment where I realized instead of blame, 
I need to take responsibility for the things that come up and claim responsibility for them rather than to pretend that I'm the victim of the other person and it's their fault. Mm -hmm. So that was number two. Number three, I realized that I'm a very creative person. I'm a writer. I get up every morning at 5 a.m. and I write for a couple of hours. And by the time I met Katie, I'd already published several books and everything. So I was really getting established in my career. I realized that in my relationships, I often sacrificed my creativity. I put my creative side aside, and then I would end up blaming it on the relationship that I couldn't be more creative. I hope all these things aren't sounding real familiar to you. These are fantastic. You're doing, keep going, please. (laughs) Good. Well, so let me tell you the magic thing that happened in December 1979, probably before you were born, my dear. But in 1979, I had this wake-up moment where I realized these three things. And so I made a commitment. There wasn't anybody around at the time, but I made a commitment kind of to the universe. I said, I promise you this. I want a relationship where both people tell the truth to each other. Both people take responsibility for what comes up rather than blaming. And both people are equally dedicated to their own creative path. And so I said to the universe, if that's not in the cards for me to have that, I'm willing to be alone. But I promise you this, I'll never, ever again settle for less. (sighs) Well, then let me run the clock forward to a month later. I walked into a room in Menlo Park, California, and I went to a a graduate school, which was called um, the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology. And little did I know that Katie was on the faculty there. She was the movement therapy teacher and was also getting her PhD there in her spare time. And so on this particular day, I was to give a lecture to all the members of the faculty and all of the graduate students who were there getting their PhDs. So there was probably about 50 people in the room. But anyway, I walked into the room and in the milling around before the uh, event happened, I saw, and it was getting underway, I saw this woman across the way, and I thought, wow, that is a beautiful human being. And Not only just beautiful from a physical point of view, but she had this aura about her. And so I made a note in my head, i got to find some good excuse to go talk to her. So during the break of my lecture, after an hour or so, I had a break, and everybody was standing around talking for 15 minutes or so. And so I was going to walk over to her and kind of chat her up a little bit, But she walked over to me to ask me a question about something I'd been saying during the lecture. Some of the faculty had come to gather around me where they were asking me questions. So she came over. So I got to meet her that way. So after other people um, kind of started going back over to their seats and everything, I said, may I talk to you a second? And she said, yes. And I said, "Um, I just wanted to know, I don't know anything about your life, but I, I wanted to let you know that I'm very attracted to you. And I would love to ask you out for a cup of coffee. But first, I need to let you know that I just made a decision that I only want relationships where both people are committed to being honest, to telling the truth, Mm. where both people are committed to taking responsibility rather than blaming, and where both people are committed to their creativity. So on those terms, would you like to have a cup of coffee with me? Amen. Talk about microscopic truth up front. Wow. That's the way we started with that moment of microscopic truth. And I'll never forget the expression. For about 10 seconds, she went like this, like she was trying to process this uh, because it was probably the last thing she ever expected to hear me say. Um, So finally, she said, how about lunch? And so uh, that was the beginning of our relationship. And when we went out for this lunch, we had this great heart-to-heart, soul-to-soul connection. And ever since then, I mean, we had our various details and dramas getting up to the point where we started, uh, where we got married and started living together and all of that. But uh, really from that moment on, that was my experience in life with being in this magical relationship with this amazing human being. And uh, she's in the next room over here doing uh, something like this on her own. And uh, we do this... uh, and have been uh, talking about our work. We've been around the world more than 30 times now and uh, still enjoying it more than ever. And uh, I can say that I've had 38 years of waking up feeling like the luckiest man on earth. 
Mm. You can feel it in your energy, Gay. Thank you. Well, there's nothing I'd rather talk about. To me, I mean, my life is dedicated to having people have better relationships. And so whether I'm doing that in the boardroom of a corporation that I'm consulting with or in a couple here in my office, uh, we're in my home office uh, right now. And um, so uh, a good many, I'll just show you what it looks like, but a good many times I've sat in that chair there and work with couples sitting over here on this couch. And whether I'm doing that or whoever I'm working with, I'm always interested in that heart-to-heart -heart connection where people can make that huge journey, that what I call the big 12-inch the big journey from here down to here, and to be able to really connect at that heart level. Even if it's something painful, to be able to say, I feel hurt, or I feel scared, or I don't know what we're going to do, or I'm angry at you, or whatever the particular thing is, just to be able to communicate at that heart-to-heart -heart level, it's where the magic really begins. Mm, that's beautiful. Gay, you, so you've just described something stunning. I mean, clearly at the age of 32, 33, when you had this epiphany moment and you really declared a whole new future that you were committed to and then called in the beautiful Katie into your life and, you know, you claimed a future that you were committed to and then you created the relationship aligned with that. When people are in relationships currently and the relationship has been any level of toxic or unworkable, and they have got to the point where they're saying they're no longer okay for this, there's a possibility to have something else. And it feels like I'm the only one that's wanting to call this in. I'm the only one that's ready. I'm the only one that's feeling like I'm kind of waking up a little here. And yet my guys, my guy or my lady is still kind of asleep through life. And, you know, I hear so often, what do I do? It's interesting because in your book, Conscious Loving, you're talking about claiming creativity which is possibly another way to talk about the radical responsibility. And I loved how you talked about radical responsibility being a split of 200%. So each person fully owning their 100. So I'm wondering, in a relationship, if I'm in a relationship, I want to shift our relationship into a space of relating from wholeness, yet my partner is more committed to, apparently seems like the pain. Here's where I find it can get a little confusing. What is, the, what is the space of me actually being able to keep claiming my 100%? Even when the other person isn't playing, isn't participating. Even isn't participating. You know, what, what, is, the, what is the line to walk there? And I think I find that this is where people can get a little bit um, tripped up because there's also um, how much do I continue to carry or how much is it just that I'm actually a part of this cycle and when I claim my 100%, I'll also stop feeding their part and then we can grow together. So, please. First of all, almost nobody wakes up at the same time in a relationship. And mm -hmm. oftentimes one person kind of has a breakthrough and sees a different way of being. And then the other person either comes along or doesn't or won't. But I, I want to let you know that it's perfectly normal for one person to kind of wake up and start doing something differently. So here's something for that person. If you're the person that's wakened up first in the relationship and is kind of wanting your partner to come along, the important thing is to practice it yourself, to practice speaking authentically, to practice taking responsibility, to practice committing to your creative life. Those things are essential for you to do regardless of what your partner does. So what you don't want to do is try to preach to your partner or make them wake up. <laughs> you know, you want to teach it by modeling it, by being an example. And so uh, ideally what happens is your partner wakes up one day and says, wow, my partner is having so much fun. I want to join the party too. Yeah. However, there's a small number of people, because we've seen four 4,000 or 5,000 couples now, we've developed some statistics about this. So in about one out of every five cases, the person really doesn't want to wake up. They want to stay where they are, you know? And I, I, I've seen that happen on a number of times where I get them in the office here and the first thing I do is I ask them to make some commitments to each other. Mm. And I can always tell from the way they respond to my question, 
yeah. how the work is going to go because I might say to them, <laughs> would you two be willing to make a commitment to ending blame and criticism in your relationship? So that's a common one that I uh, ask them to make. And one person will say, yes, that's exactly what I want. And the other person will say, well, I'm only willing to do that if she's willing to take all the blame <laughs> or if he's willing to admit that everything is his fault, I'll do that. Well, you can't do it that way. You have to say yes to a commitment just for your own reasons, not because it's a trade-off with your partner or a contract with your partner. So I can tell in that moment whether the work is going to be very difficult or very <laughs> or go very fast. Uh, so sometimes, like I say, in one out of five cases, the person just doesn't want to wake up. Like um, I think it was, I don't know if I told this story in The Big Leap or one of my books, but I was sitting on a park bench the first time I ever went to Europe. I was sitting on a park bench in a park in Paris, and I was having an espresso and resting and just enjoying the morning. And a woman came trooping across the park, um, and a woman in her 60s looked like, maybe 65 years old, and she had on this brand new pair of sneakers, and she sat down on the park bench next to me, and I struck up a conversation with her, and I commented on her sneakers. I said, those look like they're brand new. And she said, yes, they're my sixth pair on this journey. I've worn out five pairs on my trip. And I said, where did you walk here from? Uh, and she said, Arizona in the United States. What? It turned out she'd walked across the United States and then flown to Europe and was walking across Europe and was on her way to Portugal, actually, when I talked to her. And so I said, well, tell me about how that came about. And she said when she was 62 or something like that, she retired from being a school principal, I believe, the headmaster of a school. And she decided she wanted to walk around the world. And I saw she had a wedding ring on. And I said, well, it looks like you're married. Where's your husband? And she said, oh, he didn't want to come. He wanted to watch his TV shows. He said he had his favorite TV shows and he wasn't going to miss any of those. And so I said, okay, I'm going to walk around the world. And so she took off and they would get together every few months. Uh, he, she, he would fly out to see her or something like that, but she wasn't going to be stopped. And Beautiful. that made such an impression on me, Kate. It was that I thought, I want to live my life like that. I want to have my creative process be so that I'm willing to do it, whatever anybody else wants me to do. Yeah. So that's how Katie and I have uh, tried to structure our lives, that we both have access to all the creative potential we want to express. Mm. That's so beautiful. I love that story. Thanks for sharing. It's, uh, uh, it's interesting how much, so in the past couple of years for both Henari and I, a big part of us relating together is having some very clear time apart. So we, um, every month, have time away from each other in hotels. And it's literally because I feel like um, when I'm away, I get to recalibrate myself in new ways that I just can't when I'm just with other, with him all the time. And I come back fresh and I come back enthused. And, you know, last night we sat up for three hours just talking each other's ears off because he'd been in a hotel for two days and he had so many insights that he wanted to share. And I was loving hearing what he was up to. And this morning he's off to Singapore for a few days and just so lovely. So thank you so much for sharing that. We can talk so much about quality time together. But it's also get the heck away from each other, <laughs> I think, to be able to grow on our own. Thank you. Very good. Um, your charming accent reminds me to ask you, uh, where where am I talking to you in? What part of the world are you in? Ah, right now I'm in Bali, but I'm from New Zealand. Okay, good. I thought I heard a New Zealand accent there. I spent a few weeks there uh, yeah. one time. Um, oh, well, um, that's a very important thing. I'm so glad that um, you and Hanari have. Um, discovered that because that's one of the things that we ask people to do all the time is to take a little time and space for solo creativity and solo reflection. As a matter of fact, um, Katie just got back from a two-week speaking and seminar tour of Europe, which she did on her own. Um, mm -hmm. I'm kind of not a, as into traveling at this stage of my life after a couple of million frequent flyer miles. I'm very stingy about where I travel to. And uh, as a matter of fact, my 
my one big trip this year is I'm going out to Singapore, uh, you mentioned, um, and we're going to take trains all the way up to uh, uh, Bangkok uh, and stay in our favorite hotel there, which we have stayed in before, the Oriental Hotel. And so that's our big trip of the year, and I'm really looking forward to it. But um, I used to be out on the road constantly, and um, and now I'm not as interested in doing that, thanks to FaceTime and Skype and these kinds of uh, Google Hangouts and things like that, I can do my work pretty much from my office. Okay, I've got a question for you. Um, this is what I find, particularly around speaking the microscopic truth, something that Hinari and I have been practicing for many years now. And I find that sometimes we do it really well. And then sometimes I still, like the other day, I was so rusty with how it came out. It was interesting. Do you have any tips around how do we voice our truth, not withholding what's there, speak the truth of what's there? through Kia. The way in which I did it the other day, he came into the room and the way I was on a training, he came in, I had asked him not to, he came in anyway. And the way in which I turned around and said, just in a sentence to him, as I turned back, I felt the energy in my body and I was thinking, really? Like the, how that would have occurred to him was with just, there was no care in it. It was kind of like a little snappy. And I was thinking, wow. So, of course, as soon as I got off the call, the conversation I had to have was, hey, darling, you know what I just said before? I am so sorry that I didn't say that with Kia. Here's what I really mm -hmm. meant. Um, mm -hmm. and, and he's so caring. And he just gave me a hug and he said, thank you so much. I see it everywhere, though. You know, when we're sharing our truth, it can come out rusty first of all. Do you have any tips for that? Ideally, anytime you can switch from you to I in communication, you're making a good step. So if you say, right you there. interrupted me. <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. that's not. Yeah, that's that's kind of unconscious loving. Uh, yeah. But if you say, "Oh, I was really into what I was saying," and when you opened the door, it gave me a start. Yeah, that's communicating without blame. It's just telling what's so in you, but without attaching the you to it. And that's what Katie and I learned early on was part of part of microscopic. Truth is being able to speak honestly, to be able to say, I'm angry with you, or I feel scared right now, or I'm confused. I don't know what to do. Those things are I statements. Mm -hmm. It's not like you're making me unhappy, or why don't you stop doing that and then I'll be happy. Mm -hmm. That's the old fashioned way. That's unconscious loving. Yeah. So to switch from you to, hmm, what's going on in me? That's a big step. Another thing is that in relationships, it's partly about the speaking and partly about the listening. Like part of conscious communication is being able to listen non-judgmentally to what the other person is saying. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the book, we talk about listening filters, how, how people get listening filters where they're listening for criticism or listening to be right or listening to find fault. Mm -hmm. And those listening filters really contaminate the communication coming in. And so what we need to do is, and it takes practice, I'm not saying this is easy by any stretch of the imagination, is learn to listen in an unfiltered way so we can say to the person, it looks like you're feeling scared right now, or it sounds like you're angry, or I'm feeling some hurt. Is that accurate? Are you feeling hurt or sad right now? So to be able to communicate like that gets underneath our egos and puts you directly, like I said, it makes that huge 12-inch journey from here to down here, because here is where we do judging and criticizing and explaining and justifying. And those things are important at certain times. But in relationships, those are the very things that get us in trouble. Like, for example, um, some of you may be familiar with our uh, relationship researcher in the United States uh, in uh, Washington State named John Gottman. He's written a number of books. He's, he's um, very widely known as a, uh, as a researcher. And he calls, he says, there are four patterns that he calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which spell doom for a relationship. Mm -hmm. One of them is chronic criticism. Oh, yeah. Yep. It's a big one. Mm -hmm. Another one is contempt, where mm -hmm. you're really 
seeing the other person as wrong and hopeless and damaged. Mm-hmm. So criticism and contempt, those are two huge patterns that cause problems in relationship. Mm-hmm. The third one is defensiveness or stonewalling, where you aren't willing to look at your stuff. You're convinced you're right, and by golly, you're not going to take any more input. The fourth one is withdrawal or sulking, where you're not going to say what's on your mind. So you pull into yourself. Uh, I don't know. Um, it's been a long time since uh, my daughter was that age, but uh, I remember when she was two or three years old, she would pout and sulk sometimes. She would make these faces. And I found them hilarious. Of course, she she <laughs> took them very seriously. But nowadays, I wish I'd had pictures of them because so, she'd have a laugh at them too. But what happens when we use criticism, contempt, defensiveness, or withdrawal is that you end intimacy in the moment. The intimacy stops in that moment until you can come off of those patterns and communicate from your heart again. One of the problems that I see all the time when couples sometimes come here is they've been playing out the same pattern for 20 or 30 years unconsciously. And so it becomes very hard to break. You know, we're able to break it most of the time, the pattern, but it takes some real kind of sweaty work sometimes to get the pattern interrupted enough so they can have a connection of intimacy. Sometimes it's very powerful. Like um, I tell the story in one of, uh, uh, we have a new book that just came out a year or so ago that's mostly for people for 40 and above. Uh, We call it Conscious Loving Ever After uh, because it's for people in the second half of life. And one of the things that we talk about in Conscious Loving Ever After, there's a lot of things in there about creativity because we see creativity as being a big part of what goes wrong in relationships in the uh, second half of life, in the first half of life too, but mostly gaining momentum in the second half of life. People need to be more and more committed every day to their own creative process rather than looking to the relationship to fulfill all of their needs. But in uh, Conscious Loving Ever After, we've seen a lot of couples that were have been together, like I was thinking of a couple that they came in and he was 75 and she was 70. And they'd been running the same pattern for all of their life. But listen, what it took to break the pattern took 10 seconds. And it was them honestly answering the question of, are you willing to experience, regardless of how much pain you've experienced, yeah. are you willing to experience more love now in the relationship than you have ever felt before? Defining moment. It was a defining moment. And at first, honestly, they didn't respond to it very well. It was all about, well, I would be if she would be. And yeah, I might be if he would be, but he's the one who's wrong here. You know, it was all it kind of excited their regular pattern. But we kind of persisted. And finally, we got them after a half hour or so to make a commitment. I commit to experiencing more love and intimacy now in our relationship than I ever had before. So that was a good solid half hour's work just to get to that place. But the change that came over their faces the moment they said that, it was like they both kind of, you know, it's like a breath of fresh air came into the relationship because it's never too late. You know, you don't have to do these things when you're 20 or 25 years old. I mean, it would be nice maybe, but we have people in here all the time in their 50s, 60s, and 70s that make breakthroughs where they overcome lifelong patterns of creating conflict in their relationship and are able to break through to a whole new level. So I want to say a word, you know, sometimes sometimes human beings get kind of in a sense of despair about their relationships. But I just want to tell everybody, having seen thousands of people now, I am more encouraged than ever about the possibility of human beings to be able to break through to new levels of positivity and intimacy. And not just in one-to-one relationships, but also we work a lot in businesses, of course, and we work a lot in, um, you know, we've we've had presidential candidates in in counseling and that kind of thing. So um, we have a lot of experience in doing these things in all different realms of life. And that's why I can say without a doubt, 
I am so proud of what human beings can achieve if they can just get that heart open a little bit and let go of being right for 10 seconds and let go of judgment for 10 seconds and let go of their contempt for 10 seconds and just be in that new state of heartful openness. Oh, thank you, Gay. Thank you, thank you. It's so true. I'm I'm head on. We're such a stand for extraordinary relationships. And I just want to share this very quickly. My parents recreated the future of their marriage when they were 58 years old. Before 58 years old, there was alcoholism and violence and a lot of um, pain there. Post 58 years old, there was a, the word here is so applicable, a transformational shift. I feel very tearful, even like emotional thinking about it. And dad um, stood up, asked everyone to hold hands, and this is not the man that would usually do this, and said, from here things stop. The future is different. Um, And he committed the rest of his life to doing everything possible to have that happen, and he did. And so I'm sharing that because I want anyone who's listening this to this to get in this and to get in yourselves just what's possible for us as human beings. Echoing what uh, Gay has said, um, it's so easy to sometimes give up on things based on what we've experienced in the past. We can absolutely stand for something new, and we can keep standing for that and keep being the creators of that. So thank you so much, Gay. Oh well, thank you. I'm so heartened to hear that. As a matter of fact, I felt. Tears come to my eyes as you were saying that because it reminded me of so many events that have happened right here in, in this space. And Katie and I have done the same thing, of course, because I want everybody to know that we just didn't do all this stuff perfectly the first time through. Long before we wrote the book Conscious Loving, yeah. which was the first thing that Oprah that caught Oprah's attention. And that was now 27 years ago. So it was after we'd been together 10 years. So we had a lot of practice time between the time we got together and the time we started writing books about all this. And I want to let everybody know that it does take practice. It's not an overnight miracle. In a way, I I have another book called The 10 Second Miracle that is because a lot of these little miracles do only take 10 seconds. Like it only takes 10 seconds to say, I feel scared. Or I feel sad. It only takes 10 seconds to say, I've been blaming you, but now I see how I'm responsible for this too. You know, those are 10 second miracles that truly transform people's lives. And in the book, in Conscious Loving and in Conscious Loving Ever After too, we talk about some of the specific commitments you can make. And really, if you think about it, none of them take longer than 10 seconds or so to be able to look another person in the eye and say that. Oh, I wanted to tell you, um, there's another, I think in the book I talk about, um, in the new book, I talk about uh, something we call the the seven-year orgasm drought. Uh, And what happened was a couple came to us many years ago, and it had been seven years since she had had an orgasm. And they were very sexual in the early days of their relationship. And then one thing led to another, and pretty soon they intimacy stopped in the bedroom and in other areas of their life. So when they came in the door, they were way apart. And so we did a lot of communicating over the first couple of days. But where the real breakthrough was, when she said one of those 10 second communications that she had holding inside for seven years. So we asked her, what happened seven years ago? when you stopped having orgasms and she burst into tears and she said, I had an affair with his best friend. I had a one night stand with his best friend. I mean, he was standing there in the room too. And you know, that was like for the next hour or so, it was a lot of heated communication in the room. But these are the moments that we're trained to deal with. And so people come through to them to the other side. In the book of Tao, it says a strong wind cannot blow all day. Eventually, it blows itself out. And so the the magic that happened, though, was they went home that night and they had the first great lovemaking they'd had in seven years, where she had her first orgasm in seven years. And so we say, the most important sex organ is here, your voice box. 
it's it's not anything below your belt or even below your neck. It's your ability to communicate the truth at deeper and deeper levels. And if you're always living in that state of communicating the truth, you don't ever lose intimacy because that's the stuff of intimacy, the ability to communicate at that heart-to-heart level. Mm, beautiful. Thank you so much, Kate. When Katie and I first started, you know, 38 years ago, we would get stuck and sometimes we would stay stuck for days before one of us would have a little breakthrough. And finally, somebody would say something authentic. Somebody would say, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be stuck like this anymore. I remember the first time it happened, we got really stuck. We had an argument at a concert. Um, and I, I started sulking and I just wouldn't communicate for three days. And then we were on our way to some social event, to a party at a colleague's house, I think, driving in the car. And I think both of us realized we didn't want to walk into the party feeling like that. So in the car on the way, I think I said first, I said, I can't stand this anymore. I don't want to be like this anymore. And then she said, okay, are you willing to work this out? And we pulled the car over to the side of the road. And we started just talking about in I statements as best we could, you know, like, I feel so angry and I feel so sad. And I, I really wish you wouldn't dot, 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 you know. And so sitting there in the car, we gradually got to the place again where ah, we finally broke through to that heart level and walked into the party holding hands. But that was three long days. So let me tell you this. Grade yourself not on whether you get stuck or not, but how long it takes you to get unstuck. Because we started getting unstuck in less than three days. And then pretty soon we get stuck only for a day. And then pretty soon we'd only get stuck for a few hours. And then pretty soon we get only stuck for 10 minutes or so. So if you're going to grade yourself, grade yourself on the time it takes to reconnect again. Don't give yourself a harsh grade for going off track or going unconscious because it's very very natural and normal thing to do love has an enormous power to it the moment you fall in love the moment you open up to love you're invoking the greatest power in the universe in my experience and so naturally it's going to bring up strong resistance to it and so you need to expect that resistance and be open to that resistance and particularly like when my daughter was little, I used to take her horseback riding and uh, I didn't like to ride myself, but I took her to a place where she would ride around a rink with an instructor and everything because she was only like four or five years old at the time. And they had this policy there that if the kids fell off the horse, they were just put them right back on the horse and took off again. They didn't make a big deal out of it because they said, if you're not falling, you're not learning. And mm, that was an important thing. Also, when I learned to ski, the instructor said pretty much the same thing. If you're not falling, you're not learning. So don't try to avoid falling. Welcome falling. And so in relationship, it's the same thing. You want to welcome going unconscious because that'll help you move through it faster. See, if you, if you go get on in, get on your defensive high horse and start thinking you're right and the other person is wrong, the other person does the same thing. They get dug in too. Mm, I'm right, you're wrong. You know, you've got to apologize. You've got to make it safe again in this relationship. And so we put the responsibility for our happiness onto the other person. One of my favorite authors from 2000 years ago, uh, author of uh, the first self-help book that human beings produced, Epictetus, who is a uh, philosopher, in ancient Rome 2,000 years ago. His little book is called The Handbook. Sometimes it gets translated as The Art of Living. But Epictetus, in his first line, says, the secret of happiness is knowing that there are some things you can control and some things you cannot control. Knowing the difference between what I can control and what I cannot control. And let me just tell you the blunt, honest truth, everybody. 
your partner is in your cannot control file. <laughs> Many people, when we connect up with a partner, we think that they're our own private self-improvement project. And our job is to help improve them for the rest of their lifetime. But the fact is that they only will improve if we let go of trying to control them and particularly control their feelings. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do is put our attention fully on our ability to communicate our feelings in a straightforward, non-blaming way. And then that will help your partner learn how to do that. Hey, uh, I wanted to give you a statistic. Now, this is not to put a knock on men, but mm -hmm. it's just to illustrate that sometimes we men have a little bit more work to do to wake up. There was a study done on asking a simple question to people who came in for relationship counseling, males and females. This was in heterosexual couples. And they simply asked, who made the call to make the appointment to come in for couples counseling? And it turned out that it was the woman in the relationship 96% of the time. Only four times out of a hundred <laughs> was it the man who picked up the phone and made the call. So what I say is that, you know, in if you go back millions of years, we men had a different role in the hunter-gatherer uh, framework that human beings lived in for up until relatively recently, that uh, women were much more involved with child rearing and keeping the children managed and organized and things like that. And men were much more involved in uh, going out and throwing spears at large beasts and things like that. And so men learned to communicate in very small chunks. You know, when you're pursuing a woolly mammoth with a spears, you want to say, shh, here, throw, there. You know, very little bits of communication. Whereas women often learn to communicate more with more language and more. Uh, depth and more, uh, you know, a lot more words to express their feelings than men had. And, you know, this, this takes over millions of years of evolution. So now we're learning how to communicate as equals, all of us. And that, learn, that, that requires us to make a new set of commitments, like committing to being honest and committing to being undefended and committed to being keen on our creativity, to having a big commitment to whatever your creative path is. So those are the kind of things that turn life from ordinary to extraordinary. Those kind of commitments take you out of the realm of the ordinary and into a new life. Well, it never gets more complicated than just sitting down and working through the agreements, just checking them out in yourself. Are you willing, and I'll just ask this of everybody, are you willing to commit to revealing rather than concealing? That's one of the ways we put one of the commitments. And would you be willing to commit to taking responsibility for yourself and for things that come up rather than blaming the other person? So start with simple commitments like that. And once both people make a commitment to that, then you have a new place to stand. You have a new basis for the relationship. But until you make commitments clearly, looking each other in the eye, until you have those new commitments, there's no place to stand. You haven't, you haven't got anything to stand in other than your old patterns. And to start any kind of change project, you really need to make a sincere, dedicated commitment in order to get that change process started. So it doesn't matter if you're starting a diet or starting a new relationship or starting a new project of any kind, it begins with commitment, making a commitment to what you're doing and how you're going to do it. In the old days, they would make commitments in marriages like, do you promise to love, honor, and obey? They would ask the, the the woman would always get asked, "Are you are you willing to love, honor, and obey your husband?" And uh, I remember my aunt telling me when I was a kid, um, she was a very feisty kind of an early feminist, I think, and um, really a great person who lived next door to me. 
And she said that one of the problems she had when she first got married is that she made those wedding vows. But she said she didn't realize that her husband took it seriously, that she was committing to obey him. (laughs) And so he took it as license to boss her around and she wasn't going to have any of it. So it created a lot of strain in the relationship. Now what we recommend, we get letters from people all the time that said they use the commitments in conscious loving uh, as the basis of their marriage vows. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got a probably hundred letters over here from people who have uh, used the, uh, the commitments to, as the basis of their marriage vows. And we think that's an important development because if a couple is willing to stand up when they're making their dedication to each other and say, I actually commit to being honest with you and I commit to taking responsibility rather than blaming you. It doesn't mean that they're not going to blame the person sometimes, but it means they've got a place to come home to now in those new commitments. And so we call those process commitments, not outcome commitments. An outcome commitment would be, I promise to love you till the end of time. Well, nobody can promise that because, you know, that moment is not here yet. The only moment that's real is this moment right now. In this moment right now, do you commit to being honest? Do you commit to your creative path? Do you commit to taking full, joyful responsibility for the things that come up rather than blame? Those are process commitments. They're commitments to certain processes. And that's what really makes relationship come alive. Mm, Beautiful. Thank you so much, Gay. It's really interesting when you look at that first step of co-commitment, and obviously it's the commitments there. A lot of the commitments, I thought, great. Uh, We've been personally working on telling the microscopic truth and cleaning up broken agreements for a long time. Do you know the one that really stood out to me was this one? And it stood out to me in that's so simple and it hadn't actually occurred to me as something that we actually really needed to articulate as a commitment to each other. I had assumed it was, it was you know, an assumption. It was this one. I commit myself to having a good time in my close relationship. Very important because... Yeah, you know, we've been so focused on the truth and the broken agreements that we forgot about having, like, let's commit to this part as key. <laughs> it, was, it was a game changer when I read that. <laughs> Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that because, well, it seems odd to have to commit to having a good time. But if you think about it, most of us didn't grow up in situations where people were having a great time all the time in their close relationships. In fact, I never really saw it when I was growing up. I never saw anybody that had a real good relationship. I think until I was well, I remember the first really good one I saw was when I was in graduate school. One of my professors, Dwight Webb, he and his wife, Nancy, I went over to their house and I loved the way they communicated to each other. They talked to each other about stuff that was going on and nobody ever blamed anybody. And they had a little new baby at the time and um, you know, they shared the responsibility. And I, I was just blown away by that kind of communication because I realized I had not had 10 seconds of that kind of communication in my whole life. And so it gave me a new place to come from as far as what I wanted to emulate. And it took me a long time to create one of those for myself because I was only, I think, 23 or 24 when I first met them. So it took me another 10 years or so to kind of work my way through all of my defenses to get to the point where I could have that kind of relationship for myself. Um, And but finally, you know, now uh, for 38 years, it's uh, it's been. Uh, a great learning experience. One thing I wanted to say, I, I noticed we're getting a little tight on time. We often break relationships down into three categories. Mm-hmm. One category, which is about one out of every 20 relationships, so about 5%, are what we call toxic relationships, where mm-hmm. they're literally making each other sick, or they're the kids are getting sick, or the kids are getting hurt, or somebody's getting hit or you know their their relationships where both people are are losing self-esteem losing feelings losing the opportunity for love and oftentimes sacrificing their own creativity so that's only about one out of 20 the vast majority another 18 or so out of 20 are in what we call learning relationships where they're They're stuck maybe, but they need to learn something. And if they can learn something particular, they're going to get into the flow of intimacy again. Mm -hmm. 
So almost everybody is in that kind of learning relationship. There aren't that many truly toxic relationships around. The third kind is what I really want to put in a pitch for. We call it celebratory. It's where you've learned a lot about how to be intimate with each other so that you don't have that much stuff that comes up anymore. It's all about celebrating each other. And that's about one out of 20 people also. But that's a good thing to aim for is to get to that state of you've been open to learning. You've learned a lot of stuff that you need to learn. And then you're just enjoying the flow all the time. So um, here in this particular house, we've been here since 2001. I can tell you that there has not been a word of criticism spoken in our house in 16 years. It's easy to tell because I, I know from when we moved into this house. And so um, the amount of creative things you can do if there's wow. no negativity floating around. Yeah. So yeah. over those time, we've launched a number of businesses. We've written a number of books. Um, you know, like I said, been around the world a bunch of times. And so the sky's the limit about what's possible once people break through those old patterns. It's possible to create an unending flow of positive love and positive energy that really keeps you awake to your creativity all the time. Mm, beautiful. I, there's really no other words I want to say apart from amen. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Gay. Um, it was a total pleasure talking to you. And where can people find more of your work, Gay? Go to Hendrix.com or our other big website, which is called HeartsInHarmony.com, Hearts in Harmony. And you can sign up for our newsletter and uh, get all the information. Also, part of my creative process for the last five or six years is I've switched over from writing nonfiction books now to I write mystery novels. And oh, wow. So, yeah, That's I've written... I've written five mystery novels about a Tibetan Buddhist private detective in Los Angeles named Tenzing Norbu. And uh, the books all have Ten in the title because uh, that's his nickname. Ten is short for Tenzing. And so the first one is called The First Rule of Ten. The second one is called The Second Rule of Ten. The third one is called The Third Rule of Ten and so forth. And each one is built around a met metaphysical principle or rule that shows up in his work as well as in his meditation. So um, I think you'll enjoy those. So for anyone listening to this, when you're doing this inner work and you're thinking it just feels challenging or it feels significant, just remember what's possible and why you're doing it. You're standing for tapping into all of this creative juice. Thank you so much, Gay. Thank you so much for spreading the message of light and love in the world. Oh, pleasure. Thank you so much, Gay. And also, if you can please send all of our love uh, through to Katie as well. Mm -hmm.